from the Auto Line Studios. Here is your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you for joining us on AutoLine this week. Today we're going to be talking about how you start a new car company. Or maybe I should say how you restart a company that's already been there and make it a new one. We're going to be talking in a way about the Lazarus Company, the one that's come back from the dead. Because my special guest on today's show is Jim Taylor, the Chief Marketing Officer for Karma Automotive. And Jim, great to have you here. Thanks, John. Also joining us today are Joe White with Reuters and Dave Guilford from Automotive News. Great having the both of you here. Great to be here. And just for those who don't know, we should establish that Jim Taylor's got tremendous automotive background to him. Spent a large part of his career at General Motors where he ended up running both the Hummer brand and also the Cadillac brand. Some other experience in the supplier industry as well. But Mm -hmm. Jim, it's so interesting to see you here as the CMO of Karma Automotive used to be Fisker Automotive, which went bankrupt. Now you're bringing it back, or you're going to try to bring it back. (laughs) It's coming back. My first question is, (laughs) what makes you guys think that you can bring this company back? Well, I think the basics of a successful company are product. We're in the car business, right? Product and then a brand. So what's uh, really exciting, I think extremely encouraging, is the Fisker guys got it right with the product. The product is, like, stunningly beautiful everywhere you go. That's unanimous. And it plugs in. And those are two pretty strong separation points in a uh, highly contested luxury field. So we're very, very optimistic about the product. And then behind the scenes, we're doing all the things I think are necessary to build a really credible, serious, long-term uh, OEM. So, Jim, you're, you're going to be building these cars in California. Correct. Um, did you have to sort of start from the ground up in terms of the supply base, the quality control? Because there's certainly quality. I mean, you're right. Yeah, the Fisker Karma is a yeah. beautiful automobile. Uh, the Atlantic looks like it would be a beautiful automobile, but underneath the skin, there, there are issues. So yes. have you got that built up, and are you really shooting for a mid-2016 start of yeah. production? Yeah, two things. Let me go back. So the plant was a huge decision. As you know, Fisker was contract manufactured in Finland by a company called Valmet. So one of the first decisions we had to make, big one, was are we going to manufacture elsewhere? And if so, where? Europe, Mexico, China, U.S.? And if U.S., as it became, which state? So I spent quite a bit of last year... Uh, going through that. In fact, almost t- till today is our first anniversary of making that decision. So not that long ago that we'd manufacture both in the U.S. and California. And that's going to, I think, be a, a, a tremendous uh, U.S. asset as well. There really is no plant like this in the U.S. Very low volume, niche manufacture, and extremely high-priced six-figure vehicles. That's typically a European right, assembly plant that does that for Ferrari, Aston Martin, McLaren. So we're going to have a very, very unique plant. And uh, that required us to disassemble the entire body shop over in Finland, literally ship it over in boats, bring it into Delaware, ship it across the country, put it all back together, a little Lego set. And, and uh, good news is those are running. You know, right now the machines are cycling and we're, we're starting some of the tool tryouts and things like that. So that alone has been, uh, you know, a big undertaking just the plant itself. And then on the product side, as you mentioned with other vehicles uh, that, that Fisker had in the pipeline like the Atlantic, while we're, of course, focusing on the Karma relaunch, the sedan, uh, simultaneously, and again, behind the scenes, we're uh, working furiously on what's next. Is it the Atlantic? Is it, a, is it a CUV, SUV, sedan? But it's clear we have to have a portfolio of products. You can't be a one-car car company to be successful and sustainable long-term. Okay, you have Wan Jung with your company. You have Faraday Future and Ativa, yeah. three companies in the electric, electrified vehicle space in California backed by the Chinese. Yeah. The segment is not that robust in the States. What's the attraction? Attraction for the Chinese billionaires? Yeah. Or <laughs> yes. 
Well, I think if you look at a little different space that we're coming into, a couple of them are all V, uh, EV, you know, Faraday's case sure. versus the approach we're taking. And uh, I think our advantage is, you know, we already have a car and we already have a presence, albeit a, a different name now, but we have already a, a pretty good success formula that we've seen work. Uh, they're coming from literally, you know, clean sheet. But I think if you come from a Chinese uh, mindset, Dave, and think of the things, you know, just recently in the news with the amount of pollution there and the air quality, and their market, and I mean, it's just clear, they're way more invested in alternative propulsion and uh, electric vehicles, you know. And so the commitment level in our case with uh, our owner, Chairman Liu, you know, the uh, energy space is something he's been in for a lot of years and for a lot of investments, whether it's wind and solar, of course, A123 batteries. So this has been a series of investments, but his commitment to this is, is not just a financial and an investment and, you know, kind of a... Uh, an investment company kind of approach. This is very personal to him, but I think you have to be in China as we all have been and understand the, the again, the, the air quality and the things that, uh, that they're looking forward to into the next decades and seeing this as the right long-term solution. The take rate here in the U.S. just isn't as high. So mm -hmm. I think that's why we're seeing the, the, the big capitalists of China uh, taking a serious interest. Second big difference, if you're coming into, like in Faraday's case, their owner is already a big internet, call it to simplify it, you know, streaming material uh, guy. Our, our uh, chairman is a, a car parts manufacturer. So mm -hmm. coming from different uh, perspectives, and one is I'm going to have a really cool car that happens to be connected as well, or I'm going to have all this connectivity that just happens to be a car. I think we're coming from completely different starting points um, with the two different companies. So having a car already really helps and having maybe a second one in the pipeline yeah. or working on is even better still. What yeah. stuns me is you got BMW to agree to supply you all the electrical components for your plug-in hybrid. Right. What, how did that happen? Because uh, uh, Karma had, uh, or Fisker had uh, patented its own uh, hybrid system. Right never got very good reviews. Yes. I can understand why you might go to, to BMW, but what happened to those patents and how did you ever sign this deal with BMW? Well, actually I have to give credit to the prior Fisker management, primarily uh, Barney Kohler, who was one of the co-founders. So he was from BMW and all the way back to the beginnings of Fisker, they were dating and were working towards a relationship. Unfortunately, during the bankruptcy time, that had to be put on pause. So as soon as uh, it was repurchased, Barney's still with the company, and started back up. In fact, he's uh, running our engineering office in Munich right now. And he started the negotiations again with BMWs. Couldn't we be partners? And on what components? How could we small, uh, start small and then grow? And so the agreement that we uh, signed that you're aware of is for the uh, high voltage charging system. So a little bit of the technical part. We didn't have high voltage you know, DC charging in the first uh, Fisker. So they were, uh, they were willing to give us access to their already existing, proven, reliable technology that they've had in the I3s and I8s, and that's our starting point, and then with some optimism to grow from there. So that is a huge win for us. That's a very, huge very win. That, important. That's like getting uh, the good uh, housekeeping seal of approval, <laughs> because BMW just doesn't play with no. anybody, and no. especially when it comes to technical issues. No, I'd say to our credit, and we were heavily vetted, yes, so they just don't sign up with anybody. So I think that's, a, again, a strong statement for what they saw behind the scenes with the, the people we have at the company, our portfolio, Yes, we were heavily vetted. <laughs> so what's in it for what's in it for them, and and what's in it for them, and 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 how? Which is another way of asking: To what extent do regulatory you know credits and regulatory demands from the state of California and yeah. from all, perhaps ultimately China factor into your your business strategy or business plans? With BMW, I think the, uh, the what what I've been involved in, at least in the conversations with them, and and we talked about this earlier, is that 
this whole EV space is moving fast and from all sides, and whether it's connected cars and autonomous cars or whether it's just normal you know, hybrids, I think the, the jury's out, right? What's the answer? What's the, what's the perfect uh, solution? And so I think it's quite simple with BMW. They think that uh, attaching themselves with us, you know, we're going to have a viewpoint, whether it's down at the part and system and supplier level or whether it's the overall vehicle. They have a strong viewpoint with their uh, i3s and i8s and their two-com vehicles that they're electrifying. So I think just joining up with us gives them a, a wider uh, point of view and uh, some chance that we'll actually find something that they, <laughs> that they don't uh, during that relationship. Going back to the Atlantic, my understanding was that that was the platform that you could use to, to spin other vehicles off of, not the Karma. Right. Is that still the case? And so if so, it's pretty crucial for you to get that out. It is. I think it's uh, more important. It's uh, like Tesla coming down into their S. You know, you need a mainstream, high-volume platform, flexible to produce several uh, body variants. And frankly, it produces the profitability to sustain the company. And so the first in-vehicle, much like their Roadster, like their Karma relaunch, is to get the brand known, to get the brand realized, to, we say, kind of flex our, uh, our muscles as far as plant and operations and people and engineering systems, but also heavy, heavy brand awareness and establish a good reputation and then follow up with a, a higher volume series of vehicles. But you're committed, so are you committed to plug-in technology is the way to go? Because again, in California, I mean, California wants people to sell zero emission vehicles. Yes. And a plug-in hybrid mm -hmm. is not technically that. Um, so it, are, is a zero emission vehicle in the future or in the plan or, or, or not? Right. Well, I think uh, to be clear, the, certainly the Karma relaunch with the amount of lead time we had stayed with the current propulsion system and as a plug-in, but yes, in the next generation vehicles that we're looking at off this platform absolutely have to be both sets of powertrains because, again, if you look at the Chinese regulations, their incentives and their force is much, much uh, more weighted out of California to the zero emissions right. than they are to the hybrids. Battery electric, so right. I think the approach BMW took of really take your pick, don't take sides, you know, have one of each is, is the smart path. You've got a lot of competition. Dave mentioned that uh, a mm -hmm. minute ago. Faraday Future getting in, Ativa getting in. Those are in the United States. Another one in uh, China called Next EV. Yeah. Porsche's getting into it. Audi's getting into it. Don't forget Tesla. And uh, don't forget <laughs> Tesla. Exactly right. Yeah. Boy, they're so old-fashioned, it seems, these days. But right. where does Karma Automotive fit in? What kind of right. volume can you realistically achieve and, right. and hit your business numbers to be an ongoing right. viable business? Well, I think, John, again, a little bit of marketing 101, if you don't mind, is that uh, it's all about the brand and then, you know, basics here, unique selling proposition, whatever you want to call it, differentiation. And so f in our particular case, there's no question that the styling of this vehicle sets it apart, you know, even from the Porsches of the world. It, it's, again, as I said, beautiful. And then the second is, in, and we take light of this a little bit in, in Detroit, but it just plugs in. That's very unique. You know, how many Aston Martins plug in? How many Maseratis plug in? You know, how many Ferraris plug in? So... We have a, a very, very unique uh, situation in that market, and that's uh, plus six figures. And for the population of vehicles of, of, that we're going to sell, again, unlike Detroit, is very, very small. This is meant to be much more like a European manufacturer uh, niche volumes. And so there's uh, plenty of, of luxury intenders in this kind of space. Already have four or five cars. This is another one in their collection, but it's purchased, and as I mentioned, in these interviews that we've had with a lot of the customers, um, it really is their kind of favorite car because it's, they can take it and they aren't just the other Bentley, the other Ferrari in the lineup. Uh, this is really a, a unique vehicle for them. So I think there's room for us in this uh, very small market with a very low volume. But, but so for, 
years, people in the auto industry have told me, scale, yep. scale, scale. Yes, if you don't exactly. have scale, you're out of the game. <laughs> yeah. What's different about yeah. the kind of car that you're selling that allows you to, to in, at least visualize operating as a small scale, mm -hmm. and, and, a small scale and succeeding? Yeah. Is there something different about electric vehicles that makes that possible? Well, I think that's a great question. I think it's one of these um, catch-22s. You put in an invested capital base. You know, Sergio's not all wrong on this, right? That you put in an invested capital base, and then it becomes self-fulfilling. Well, you have to have volume because you have the capitals. So you have to pay off the capital. So let's invest more capital. If you start clean sheet as we are with no capital base, and then in this plant that I mentioned in Moreno Valley in California, we took a very, very low capital approach that compared to what a normal OEM would spend on a brand-new plant, and gear yourself up for low volume, uh, like the European Hilux have been doing for ages, then the, the business model can work out. Second part is what we already mentioned. Again, Sergio isn't far off, highly leveraging other partners in the supply base, big boys that have already spent the capital. So fortunately, we've been uh, back to many of the prior Fisker suppliers to kind of uh, ask them nicely if they would come <laughs> back again. <laughs> and as part of that, you know, we've been fortunate. We've had the, the big guys, Bentler, Bosch, uh, Delphi, has been you know, phenomenal. So they also are part of that capital equation and have huge invested capital and are just sort of peeling a little bit off on the edge for us. So um, I think you can sort of break that, uh, I'd say, tradition or, or that, uh, that feeling that we all have in the business that you have to have high volumes uh, to be able to make it to work. So they're leveraging, they're leveraging their scale so you don't have to. Right. In other words, your scale to them. Well, we are because we're kind of, and, and think of BMW, we, we go in and say, that part that you've already engineered, you've already tooled, you've already validated, could we just have a few more to that supplier? That, that's you know, just extra volume off the end. Now, our customized parts, like you know, the body metal, for instance, I mean, obviously that's unique, but the more parts we can go into the, call it the world's parts bin, and pull off of that, all that capital has been pre-invested. Not just hard capital, engineering capital, right? Testing and, and everything else that all adds up to that billion dollars a car. And Karma Automotive was able to buy the old Fisker for pennies on the dollar, right? Less what was the buying cents. price? $150 million, which in this business is nothing. Over billion, three, four invested. So, right, you start out 10 cents on the dollar and take that as already your invested asset and then be very frugal in how you add to that. And at the end, when we launch, you know, the, relaunch this vehicle, it'll be very uh, capital efficient. Does Karma still own that plant in Delaware or is that, is that offloaded? We do. It's still in the assets, yes. Is it for sale or do you need it? <laughs> it's for sale. Yeah. <laughs> do you know anybody? Yeah. I'll ask around. <laughs> yeah, okay. Speaking yeah. of assembly plants, I find it interesting uh, that you chose California. Yes. You're an old purchasing guy. Yeah. You know the cost of inbound logistics right. better than anybody in this business or yeah. equally as well. Yes. Why California? Yeah, that was a trade-off. You're right. All of the logical answers no question that land you right where everybody else is. In the I-75 corridor, southeast, you know, Tennessee, South Carolina, where everybody else goes because, again, they're extremely high volume. And so, you know, dollars per car make a huge difference. You start going north of six figures, you know, you shouldn't be counting pennies. You should be thinking about other things. And in our case, we thought that having literally a California car company with a California plant, California brand, California engineering, would not just be compelling in the U.S. to luxury manufacturers, but worldwide. If you look at the brand image that California has been able to create as, as a state, but also with the entertainment and the technical industries there as well, it worldwide is highly respected. Where do people travel to when they come to the United States? New York and California. So, and then lastly is very operational, and having lived through this as well, when you have your engineering wherever they are, let's say Detroit, because that's what happens, and your launch is in Mexico, it's in Oklahoma City, you know, it's someplace that isn't in Detroit, all of that you know, back and forth to those plants 
is uh, opportunities for either you know success or failure, depending on how many people are, are available. Having this plant for a startup company, you know, right literally in our backyard, one small hour, volume too. They, small isn't that volume. critical to making critical. this work in California? Yeah. One hour from us is, uh, I think, going to be a huge enabler for our success when we relaunch the vehicle. Just one hour from your 300 guys that are available on an hourly basis to help out. That's going to outweigh the additional logistics cost by millions. Jim, when you mention your competitive set, you talk about brands like Ferrari, Rolls-Royce, Aston. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that your, your competitive set? Because if you're talking about BMW and Mercedes, they're going extensively into plug-in hybrids. Yeah, they'll look at the price point, Dave. If you look at a curve of, of cars sold over $100,000, yeah. not the mainstream volume of BMW, Mercedes, and Audi, but uh, peak over 100000 and see how fast that drops off. So, of course, there's some AMG S-classes and things, but then you break into Aston Martin and Maserati, you know, of course, expensive uh, Teslas, but the air gets pretty thin, and that's our competitive brands. You're right. Ferrari, McLaren's another step up from that. What I was referring to there was more their manufacturing processes and okay. how they tool a plant and what volume they go for in the units of you know, cars per hour, not 60 an hour or 90 an hour, uh, or uh, that kind of thing. That's what I meant by Maserati and, or excuse me, with Ferrari and, uh, and uh, the Bentley and the extremely low volume guys. So are you starting out just in, just in California or just in the United States, or do you also have a, plans to be in China fairly, fairly shortly right. after you launch? I call it a you know, control ramp, but no, pretty much immediately uh, across the, the globe. So they had, in the prior, uh, Fisker had um, legalized the vehicle. I guess that's the right way to put it for all three of those uh, major continents. And so that's our intention as well as the rollout first here and then, uh, then Europe and China. Yeah. China has a 25% import tax on regular vehicles. Does that apply to what they call new energy vehicles like this? It does, yes. So, ooh, yeah, so Unfortunately, woo. Kind of price. So do you Any need, thoughts of making point, this you, in Don't China? you need another yeah. factory in China? Well, that's part of, again, this next-gen conversation is where is the next plant. And you're right, given where not just us, but where is the volume of the Chinese auto industry? Maybe. Where are, are the luxury cars in the whole world sold? China. Where's our owner? China. Might, might be logical. Yeah. Let's China? connect the dots. <laughs> yes, might be logical. I think we have our answer. How big is China in your business plan? I mean, is that going to be your biggest market? Um, yeah, I think, although, you know, sort of like 50, 25, 25, but mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. How are you going to retail these, especially in the U.S., where you're yeah. going to have to go, I guess, you're going to right. have to go through franchisees? Right. Well, not necessarily. So just like we did when you asked about the suppliers, when we got there almost a couple of years ago now, first was, all right, let's go back to all the suppliers and uh, ask them politely, would you please come back? And you know, play nice with this. So that was, uh, you know, pretty uh, long year to get some adamant yeses and some adamant noes, but we were able to uh, reassemble the whole supply base. Likewise, we were going back literally as we speak, starting the first quarter to the uh, prior Fisker dealers and uh, then new ones and looking at that whole footprint and starting with our, uh, call it dating process. So by the end of the first quarter, our intention would be to come to the conclusion and here are the three choices, which you said. You go the dealer franchise route, like Frisker had. You go the Tesla route, just do it ourselves. Or a hybrid where we do a mix of both, because each of the states have different, uh, as you know, uh, franchise laws that they've uh, had prior to Tesla and then post-Tesla. And so some have an easy barrier, you know, no, no barriers to entry, and some have pretty significant barriers to entry. So, so you're, you haven't committed to one approach or the other at this no. point. You're still studying. No. So we have a package that we've got that shows some of, the, some of the questions you're asking. Here's our business plan. You know, here's our price points. Here's our intentions. Here's our volumes. So on the next stage is literally we're setting these meetings up. Uh, I've been out on some sort of preliminary dating of, you know, just how do you like us so far. Very simple stuff um, to, to know who to go back to. But then the first quarter we'll be on the road 
asking them specifically, you know, here's our terms and conditions, literally, here's our franchise approach, you know. And for, this isn't for everybody, and that's why the alignment, Dave, you mentioned with, you know, Ferraris or Bentleys, it's, it's more the people who sell those today who get low-volume, high-priced luxury would be more interested than a, than a high-volume dealer, even in the mass luxury uh, space of Cadillac, Audi, Mercedes, who are used to really forced to move metal every month. So is this going to be sort of a coastal car? I mean, select luxury markets? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. If you look at California, Texas, Florida, and New York, you've got mm -hmm. just between that over 50% of the, of the market. You could be in literally five cities, four states, and already have 60% of the volume. Can I ask you, I'm interested in your point of view about the premium luxury market and electrification. Because mm -hmm. if you look at the mass market electric car business, it's, it's a mess. It's, and it was, it was a mess before gasoline went under $2 a gallon. And now that it's under $2 a gallon, it, it's yes. just flatlined. Um, but it seems, as if you, I mean, it seems as if you have a point of view, I think your competitors have a point of view about where premium is headed vis-a-vis -vis electrification. Right. And I'd like you to kind of speak to that a little bit. I mean, do you think that's where super premium is headed? Well, I think here's some basics of just, uh, you know, economics 101 at, at the, say, Volt level of pricing, Nissan, Leaf, and these folks, you're still a very rational buyer, right? You're going in and doing the math. And unfortunately for those cars, and those cars cost, you know, a lot extra to make. So unless, in the case of Nissan and GM, they can just decide, you know, here's how I'm going to subsidize it so the price is artificial, and that's just part of being, you know, a big company and a brand. The higher you go, obviously, the less it becomes about uh, the price. So the folks that are deciding whether they're going to buy a $120,000 car aren't doing the math, right? This is, I want it or I don't, and I want it for emotional reasons. I want it because it's gorgeous, and, and it's true. I want it because it plugs in, and it's, it's a point of differentiation. So we're not nearly as obligated to make the numbers you know, match as they do down at the bottom end. I think that's the struggle of the, you know, the lower end of the market and not being able to hit the kind of volumes we're expecting because the... The price points just don't work out, and if you're trying to do a payback on gas pricing, you know you're just beat today, right? Right, right. But do you think that that customer, that electrification is going to be a box that you have to check to get to a certain type of affluent customer? Ah, well, certainly. You know, I've been focusing on the the prior Fisker owners and and uh, talking to them personally and getting into their heads, so I know what's you know what compelled them to buy the vehicle back then. And that was pretty high risk. You know, they're, they're again, post six figures, brand new brand, electrification technology. So it was a very, very kind of early adopter risky move. But this isn't, again, a cell phone that you throw out in a few months. So this is a $100,000 car. And so they really did take a, a heavy chance. But it's also their wiring. These, our customers at least, are risk takers and, you know, kind of love this thrill, to be honest, whether it's in their personal life and how they do weekend warrior stuff or, or how they buy cars. So... But I think increasingly it'll be, again, a point of separation. When I buy an extremely expensive car, not just to get A to B, what am, what am I doing? What am I saying? What am I saying to the people that look at me is, I'm different. I, I chose to have this car. I'm a little smarter than you. I found this one and you didn't. And so the electrification has got an extremely high-tech you know, feel and transmission to it. So the people that are buying that are for their own personal issues, you know, possibly environmentally, but in addition, it's... Uh, hey, anybody can have a gas car, you know, I have an electric one, and it's different. And that's a big part of just uh, Hilux. You, know, you buy a different watch, you buy a different purse, right? You buy a different boat, you buy a different plane. It's because I can, but also it's different than you. So electrification is a huge differentiator. Tesla has had this strategy of starting at the high end, then moving down Gen 3, like in the 30,000s range, right. to get some more volume. Do you plan to do that, or do you plan to stay in the high, high end? 
No, our, our second vehicle we've been mentioning, the second line or the second uh, set of vehicles will definitely be at a lower price point that allows us to um, do higher volume. So the Karma sedan will still end up being flagship or iconic, right. as we mentioned, but the next series would be at a higher volume level. Which would be in the 50-60 range? Yeah. <laughs> ah, nice try. Now you're asking. Right. Oh, sorry, was that too specific? Nice try. One thing that's so unique about uh, Karma Automotive is it's owned by the Chinese company Wangsheng, which also owns A123, the battery maker. Right. Talk a little bit about that. Is that really an advantage for yeah. you? How does that play out? I think short term it, it was an advantage to us, but you know, obviously from an engineering standpoint, it was engineered in a car. We know it works, and they long ago quality issues that were once in prior Fisker or, or far past, those were uh, solved a long time ago. Their battery chemistry, if you're looking in that little fine set of what we're looking for for hybrid batteries, is still you know state-of-the-art. That space is moving extremely fast, but one thing Pindi, as you know, our owners, have uh, been very clear is, and this is how he runs all his Wangshan companies, is everybody stands on their own. No favors. You want to switch suppliers? Have at it. So we have a, a free license to go where we think is the technology, where the cost is, and each of his divisions, you know, win or lose on their own, uh, on their own, you know, standing. So A123 is not locked into this car by any Not forever. Stretch. No, mm -hmm. no, absolutely. But for startup, it was absolutely the right thing to do because, again, just like many of the other parts, if you're going to start all over with a new supplier, you've got to really see an advantage, you know, from the things that aren't so glamorous in this business, but timing and quality and startup, uh, you know, tooling and all those sorts of things. So in each case, every part in the car, every supplier, we had to evaluate that, of course, but... In this particular case, A123 still has, you know, leading chemistry in that area that we need. We're getting down to the very end here. I'll need a real quick question. Henrik Fisker designed this beautiful car that yes. you got. Mm -hmm. He's no longer with the company or associated with it. Right. Who are you going to get for design? I'm really glad you asked. I didn't get a chance to say this yet. We've, we've got a, a, an amazing front line. One of them is Alexander Klatt. And we Klatt. need it quick because we're yep. coming down to the end. Alexander Klatt was VP of design. So Henrik was a CEO and was, okay, doing the design as well. But the head designer that worked as, right, as his right-hand man, Henrik's right-hand man, is on my team, hired back, and he's reassembling the team. So we're in good shape. We could talk another five hours, yeah. clearly. <laughs> Jim Taylor, thanks so much for coming on. Really great having you here. Joe White, Dave Guilford, great having the both of you. I want to thank all of you for having tuned in. I hope you learned a whole lot about Karma Automotive.